welcome everyone. Uh, we are in our second or third week, I think, of, um, of the SDR division initiative called Meet the Star a Scholar. And it's our great pleasure to welcome today Rajri Agarwal, who agreed to engage with us. Uh, my name is Denisa Mindruta, and I am going to moderate this discussion because I am part of the executive committee of the SDR division this year. This is truly a team effort, and uh, Samina Karim, our division uh, chair, she, she has led this wonderful initiative. Today, I will be held by Jiao and Vivian, they will be my co-host. And I recognize so many um, faces here. We are among friends. So please, at any point in time, feel, uh, feel free to team in and ask questions and let me, uh, help me uh, moderate this uh, better. Uh, Rajiri, for those of you who don't know you, um, let me, and for those of you who, uh, those of us who have forgotten um, some of your accomplishments, allow me to summarize um, a few notable things about you. You are the Lamont Chair of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the University of uh, Maryland, and also Director of the Ed Snyder Center for Enterprise and Markets, which you um, actually founded. You're, you got your PhD in economics, not strategy, from Sunny Buffalo. And I'm sure there will be more questions about this uh, soon. You have recently been uh, appointed co-editor of the Strategic Management Journal. This is a very important responsibility. It's not the only one you have taken in our profession because your service is, includes so many- Okay, um, Denisa, you can hurry yes. up now. You're, you're, you're causing me to be quite embarrassed. No, 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 Rajri, you'll have to go through this. This is a standard format which we uh, chose. So um, I'm gonna <laughs> exercise my role as a moderator here. So bear with me for a few minutes. You, are, you have been a senior editor at the organization Science and a co-editor-in-chief uh, at the Strategic Entrepreneurship Journal. And you serve on many roles at the AOM and SMS. And of course you are a uh, a chair uh, of the BPS division, now SDR division, program chair at the SMS. You are the president of CCC. This is probably not a very well-known community to everyone at the Academy of Management, but it's worth mentioning. So CCC stands for Consortium for Cooperation and... Uh, Cooperativeness and Competition. Right, okay, and this is a very interesting group with people doing research in entrepreneurship and innovation, of course, uh, two topics that are very dear to you. And we all meet in the spring and it's for PhD students who um, uh, later stages in their dissertation who want to receive uh, advice from prominent scholars in the field. It's truly a wonderful initiative. And those of you who didn't know about it, you should talk to your advisor or if you are already a, uh, a professor, you should consider sending your students to CCC. Rajiri, you received so many awards and recognitions. I'm just going to focus on a few of them that you uh, proudly refer to uh, when, when you speak about yourself. 
the Distinguished Scholar Teacher Award given by the University of Maryland. Uh, also at the University of Maryland, you receive several times uh, the, uh, you've been nominated as the Graduate Mentor of the Year. Uh, you also got a Davis Productivity Award from the state of Florida and a University Scholar designation by the University of Illinois. And you've been um, inducted a Fellow of the Strategic Management Society a few years ago. You publish over 60 articles and book chapters and you have over 11,500 citations. I think your last papers, I look on your Google Scholar, you know, in the last two years, I counted more than 20 papers. It was, was difficult to count, so maybe I missed some of them, but you are currently working on more than 20 papers. Your papers have been recognized with numerous awards. I uh, selected some of them here, SMS Award in 2016, AOM in 2005, and an AMJ uh, Award in 2004 for your work on uh, spin-outs and employee mobility. Your research topics are on knowledge transfer through employee, entrepreneurship, and mobility. You often emphasize upward mobility of one of your dearest research topics. Um, you uh, have also done work on experience-based advantages in new product markets and on the influence of dynamic knowledge-based capabilities on firm performance and firm renewal. And I, um, several of us know that you have a very strong uh, media presence, at least lately, you've been a, a Forbes contributor, you have a column there. I, um, again, recommend this strongly to everyone who wants to know more uh, about you, Rajri. So with that, um, and because you didn't allow me to go uh, more with the introduction, uh, let me stop uh, sharing here and uh, let me repeat how um, fortunate we are to have you today with us, Rajri, at the STR division. We, we really value your scholarship. And we would like to start with a few questions. Um, and let's say with the beginning, <laughs> in the beginning, <laughs> Rajri, as a um, um, young uh, woman in India, um, you had a very unusual career path. As, as much as I know about India, I don't think it's, uh, at least at the time, it wasn't um, very common for someone to, uh, to get a PhD. So we are all curious to understand your pathway to the US and academia and who influenced you along the way and what prompted your, your choice. Um, yeah, so I wish you an I academic <laughs> career. I wish I could say that um, I had this passion of doing research and I always knew I wanted to do a PhD in economics um, and then continue as a scholar. It couldn't be farther away from the truth. Right? So as a student going into the university, I was actually um, uh, in Bombay University, I still remember. I was less in the lecture halls and more in the cafeteria. I was also one of these few people that rode a motorcycle and people cleared the pathway as soon as they saw a woman riding a motorcycle because they were so afraid that they would get hit, right? Um, and on the cafeteria was graffiti about how Rashri was a tomboy. 
the larger point that I'm trying to get at out here is I couldn't care less about studying and about putting my mind towards uh, school and work. And uh, in India, one of the things, uh, fortunate or unfortunate, I think unfortunate, is that you can, if you put your mind to it, at least in those days, you could spend like three or four weeks ahead of the final exam and truly ace it if you had your mind put to it. And that was the, that was the bulk of my intellectual engagement, even in my master's in economics. So why, uh, why a PhD? Honestly, it was an escape um, it was an escape hatch because if I, even my master's in economics was uh, because if I graduated with just a bachelor's, couldn't work because my father did not think that was appropriate for a woman, uh, it would then mean that I'm sitting at home doing nothing, which means that I have to be married off. And so, um, uh, uh, and so uh, the issue that I had to face was so long as I was studying, he would leave me alone. And so I got my master's and that's when I also developed uh, a spine and said, nope, this is not what I wanna do. But I came to the United States, not because I was interested in academia, but because academia was my ticket out. I was smart, I knew that. I could apply myself, I knew that. But it was only after I came uh, to SUNY Buffalo, in part because I was following my then fiance, who I know I could have come on an F2 visa and he looked at me and he says, you know, you're smart. Why don't you apply for a PhD too? And I said, yeah, that, that, that's not a bad idea. It'll gain me another year ahead of time before I have to follow you. So yeah, sure, why not? Um, that said, teaching was my first love. I still remember when I was 10 years old, I would, and of course, Asim, you can laugh at this, uh, given the jokes that you make at my expense, I would pretend to be teacher to these imaginary set of kids whom I was gonna teach the principles of math. Um, loved, loved, loved teaching. In fact, I remember a conversation with my father who said, I said, I'd love to be a teacher. And he says, well, teachers don't make enough money. Uh, you know, that said, I think I just came to a country and chose a profession where, thank you very much, we make a lot of good money. Uh, so I think that was the beginning of my story, Denise. I don't know if you wanted it to be as colorful uh, or, uh, you know, as unintellectual uh, uh, as, uh, uh, as it goes. Rajri, I appreciate your sincerity. And I need to um, tell everyone that um, we have a special relationship and you have been my advisor and I'm very grateful for the fact that I am part of your community of, uh, of, of students. And um, you don't cess to amaze me with these, uh, with little details that I didn't know about you. So I didn't know you were riding a motorcycle <laughs> and I haven't seen that written uh, anywhere. Uh, so that's, that, that's very, very interesting. Um, I do know that um, as much as you would like to uh, downplay the intellectual uh, uh, part of your decision, um, you know, your, your, your pathway to academia um, really shows your intellectual curiosity and there's no, no point in, in hiding that. So 
I would like us to to um, ask. No, I would like you, but I'm saying us because I, I know a little bit about um, your journey in uh, during the PhD years. So I think it would be really great if you can talk a little bit about um, your PhD in economics, um, how you chose your dissertation. Um, what would be, uh, how did you go down to narrow the question in your dissertation? When did you know uh, what, um, what you wanted to, to study? And then um, all of these with, uh, with the purpose of informing people who are here in the audience, um, giving them some of your uh, advice on how to deal with uh, the difficult time when you don't know what you're gonna do in uh, your dissertation or you are on the wrong path. Yeah, so, so yeah, so as you, you know, yeah. like, like I said, I knew that I had smarts, though I hadn't applied myself. So the first two years of my PhD, I actually sailed through even though the coursework was much more intense and there was no way that I was just going to skate through with mugging in the last two weeks of, uh, you know, that's an Indian phrase, uh, um, a, uh, you know, in the, the work. Uh, and I actually, you know, for, for all of my pride in keeping myself well-kempt, I still remember the first six months of my PhD uh, coursework was life from hell. Right at the end of like October, November, I didn't care how I looked. I did take a shower every day, but beyond that, my hair was a mess. Everything was done because all I was caring about was surviving that coursework. But I sailed through the coursework. That was not an issue for me. Aced my comp exams. That wasn't an issue for me. What was an issue for me, and in part it could be because I was never trained to think creatively and come up. So I was a very good consumer of knowledge and could integrate and apply that consumption, but I didn't know how to create knowledge. And so for me, at least, year three was a valley of death, right? I mean, this is one of the things where all people struggle. I truly, truly struggle. And two stories here. I still remember my first uh, seminar that I gave. Uh, and I presented this bi-directional link between innovation and entry across industries, right? Because by then I had known that I was always fascinated by innovation. And by the way, innovation and entrepreneurship was not studied in economics way back in the 1990s, right? This was very much relegated to um, uh, the sidelines, not no good reputed uh, economics program really studied that. But I had Michael Gold that I deeply admired. And in fact, he had written the seminal piece along with Stephen Klepper, of course, on innovation and diffusion of innovation. So I knew I wanted to work with him. So I created this you know, big sounding thing and I gave this presentation. And I still remember one of the assistant professors took me out for lunch the next day. And he's trying to explain to me about some concerns that they have. And I was tone deaf. I was not listening to what he said. And then finally he turned around and he looked at me bluntly and he said, Rashi, let me say this very bluntly to you. You don't have anything in this picture. It's all a set of words that are put together, but it doesn't mesh and it doesn't uh, make sense, right? So you got all of these things, but there's nothing novel there. 
So that was like wake up and think. I still remember another very defining moment where I was one of these graduate students. We had our room uh, right by where the other uh, professors um, also had, right? So I was in the graduate student room. And one of my committee members, not so kind, not so nice person, um, and especially not kind, um, he knew that I was struggling. And I think deliberately in my earshot, he turned around and said, you know, I don't understand these graduate students. They say they can't come up with an idea. Off the top of my head, I have at least five ideas I can give them. I don't even understand what they mean by them. And I was thinking to myself, one, one idea is all I care about. Can I please get that? But fast forward several years later, and this is something that I also have written in a recent piece where I was asked to reflect back on it. I think that even if he gave me the idea, and this is something I've realized with working with my own PhD students, you know, someone else can give you an idea, but two things happen. One, it's not your idea in an intellectual sense, but more than that, it's not your idea in an emotional, psychological sense. And so as you're going through years and years of truly slogging, you know, getting the right data sets to make sure that you're identifying and able to test or study the relationships that you care to study, identifying what is the hook that is truly novel and creating new knowledge for you. That's a lot of hard work. And if you don't have this burning passion in your own belly to wanna to solve that problem, you're not gonna have the staying power to do it. So now I turn around and if I am the kinder version of that person and I say, look, you know what? Let's figure out what it is that you care about. What is it that you're passionate about? It doesn't matter what ideas I think are important. What matters is what you think is important. And let's figure it out with each other. And I'll help you think through that. And we learn in this entire process. And so one of the things I'll say to you is I, I mean, many of you are my former PhD students. Some of you are long lasting co-authors. I have learned from you all just as much, perhaps even more than what you have learned from. And I think that that is the beauty of a great PhD uh, uh, experience. And I was fortunate enough that my main advisor, Michael, truly had that uh, uh, ability to do that. Brad, I'm going to just ignore your chat feature anymore. I'm not even going to read it because you're now you're distracting me. Um, but you know, one of the things, Michael and I had such a great relationship with each other. He gave me away when Rob and I got married. Um, and um, he was truly an intellectual father for me. And I treasure that. And one of the things that many of you have often repeated is something I learned from him. He matches effort for effort. If he sees that you're putting in effort, he will match effort there. And I have always appreciated that about him um, because that makes the relationship between mentee and mentors that of equals rather than a learned and a learner. Right. So, um, Rajuri, the uh, your evolution of a scholar, it you know, it's it, you change from economics to strategy, and for some people, um, this change may uh, 
not be very obvious. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about how you develop a stream uh, or research out of your early papers and how much of your own revolution later on as a strategy scholar relates to what you, you have done early on in your dissertation? So I, I am a scholar of innovation and entrepreneurship. And in fact, if I use the same lens um, that we use in our research, I would say that in every one of my, um, if I were to think back on my scholarly journey, it's definitely one that uh, is evolutionary and I study industry evolution. But more importantly, it has been a situation where um, you know, sometimes even I consciously did not know why I was fascinated by some of the questions that kept puzzling me or intriguing me or causing me to pursue projects. So if, you know, some, some of the things that several of us have to do, for instance, is uh, write a research statement at key junctions of our career, right? And particularly when it comes to tenure or even when you're going out on the job market, what's your research statement? What's your identity? And I think that at least to be honest, I have never ever, and I don't believe most of the people that I truly admire actually would have this, oh, I have this very clear identity of who I am and this is how everything works, right? Most often than not, when you're writing your research statement, it is a combination of some things that you knew you wanted to do and some things that post hoc make sense, but you may not have been able to articulate why you chose that, those particular projects. But one of the things that I'm always very grateful for is I gave myself permission to go explore projects that subconsciously I was attracted to for whatever reason. And then later on gave myself the luxury to sit back and think, well, how does it connect? So I think that my entire evolution, if I were to talk about it, is a set of gathering expertise in a particular area, really getting to know that area well. So I became a scholar of industrial evolution. And at least from the economics viewpoint, by the time I had graduated with my PhD, I could say that I was one of the scholars that knew everything about industrial evolution. But very early in my career, you know, and part of it could have been the accident of being in University of Central Florida in a business school. I was talking to people in addition to working with Michael and senior scholars like Barry Bayers who reached out to me, you know, this is one of the serendipitous things, reached out to me out of the blue. Um, I love your data set. Can I have it? Because I have this idea that I want to work with. So then I, you know, this was pre-Google days, but I reached out to Raj Ichambari, who was a marketing professor, and I said, This guy seems to be from marketing. You know, who's this guy? And Raj says, Wow, that's Barry Bayes. He's an amazing scholar and looks at marketing and diffusion of innovation in a very strong lens. And it would be great if you have an opportunity to work with him, absolutely do that. Right. So that kind of endorsement from a colleague that I cared about. But then I reached out to Barry and I said, actually, I was, you know, and the question and the idea that he was talking about was something that I was interested in, but I was taking much more of an economic supply side. Lens, right? I illustrate this example with Barry because this was then one where Barry and I forged a co-authorship back in the days when you didn't have the web 
this was entirely done. We didn't even meet till our first management science paper was published six years later, entirely online. Uh, but it was one of these things that got me thinking about how marketing views the same phenomenon. And then Raj and MB, both marketing professors, assistant professors uh, in University of Central Florida, the three of us really hit it off. And so we wrote a series of papers that seemed to be much more applicable to strategy. And I credit MB for identifying this switch from economics into strategy, given that the things that I was interested in, there didn't seem to be much of a conversation in uh, economics, but there was a vibrant conversation that was happening in strategy, in part because of people like Dick Nelson and Sid Winter and Dave Mowry and uh, Stephen Klepper and David Teese, who had left economics for precisely their frustration with the inability to answer these questions. So I found my new home there. And again, this is an example of, you know, things that are interesting and exciting to you. Uh, one of the things that I've appreciated Raj saying to, you know, at one point in time, ideas don't know which discipline they're in. And so I followed my ideas, not necessarily the disciplines. And then whatever discipline was talking about those ideas, I learned to become an expert and do that. Sometimes because reviewers forced me to, sometimes because authors introduced me, and sometimes because I personally felt this is the way that I need to go forward, and so I need to learn this thing. You know, you, Denise, are an example of a person that helped me think about academic entrepreneurship at a time when I was thinking about employee entrepreneurship, right? So your ideas about research contracts and university firm relationships got me thinking in that realm, and thank you for that. Well, thank you, Rajari, but you ran with it in a, in a totally different uh, direction <laughs> than uh, I did. Uh, you opened so many uh, topics. I don't, I don't know what, Lisa, if I may, what you just said is a very, very important uh, thing that we should mm -hmm. keep in mind. Mm -hmm. And Martin's here, so let me also pick on Martin here, right, as to, to exemplify this. See, Martin, you can't get away uh, from mm -hmm. these uh, relationships. So I remember in second or third year when he had an idea around technological complexity and its effect on innovation and entrepreneurship. And I don't remember the particulars of it, but I do remember very vividly one day Martin coming into my office. This was still the basement office in Illinois, Martin, if you remember, and he was really dejected. Now, if you know Martin, he's not one of these dejected people, right? He's a very calm, composed type of a person that walks in the door and always has this very you know, uh, statesmanly-like uh, affect. So it's like, what's, what's going on, Martin? Asim is laughing at me here. Uh, but you know, what he was upset about is he had just read this paper and he felt like he'd been scooped. Do you remember this, Martin? Right? Uh, he felt like he'd been scooped and he was very depressed. And I think that that conversation was very insightful for me, at least, if not for Martin, because that's when I realized that, you know, we get dejected because we think that someone scooped us. Turns out that your take on something will be uniquely yours precisely because you come at it with a different type of knowledge and a different set of aspirations. 
So I don't worry about whether or not somebody has already done a similar idea. That just gives me an opportunity to think about how somebody else is thinking about that issue, benefit from the complementarities, and in fact, even build on it for other ideas that can then develop the knowledge even further. So the fact that you and I can approach the same phenomena at a very different lens is perfectly okay because together then we're building knowledge. Right, Rajri, um, I do want to build on to uh, uh, on what you what you said uh, before. I'm gonna keep one question for later, and this question and and please remind me everyone in. <laughs> so oh, we need to ask this uh, this question to Rajri. Um, because you know the way you talk about the topics um, that belong or do not belong to to the stra to strategy as a field made me um, you know think about um, how you see your role at the strategic management uh, journal and this openness of the field I think is what has attracted um, many of us to be in uh, strategy in the, uh, to take the specialization of uh, strategy as um, uh, for, for our uh, PhD, although it could be a selection uh, issue as well, but let's say <laughs> it was a treatment effect. <laughs> we we, uh, um, uh, we learn more about strategy in our PhD and then we became in love and we felt like it's a field that accommodates uh, many, many topics. So that's one thing I would like us to discuss, but before going in that direction, I still want to stay close to what you just said about your um, intellectual uh, trajectory. And I want to um, ask a question that actually uh, one of your co-authors, Raj, who couldn't be here today, uh, asked me you to think ask you. you <laughs> no, so, so tell him I said that. No. Okay, um, sorry, I couldn't hear you very well. You said what? Can you please oh yeah well he said he has a scheduling conflict but he said that um you know you started off as an industry uh, level scholar and then you examine firm level and now you're looking at the individual level issues so um his question was what prompted this personal evolution and um how has the examination of different levels help you develop a cohesive uh, body of literature? And along this line, along the lines of what are the lessons for us? Uh, can you then tell us um, if there are any lessons for junior scholars yeah. uh, based so, on your so, own evolution? Yeah, so you noted earlier that I discuss, uh, I do, uh, I feel very proud of the honor of getting the Distinguished Scholar Teacher Award. Uh, not because I got the award, but because that's so core a part of my identity. Uh, at a later point in time, I'll be happy to share the link to the lecture that I gave, which kind of talks about the, you know, fostering enterprise, your journey is your destination, something that I take very seriously. Uh, but more specifically to your point about levels of analysis, um, you know, perhaps because I was shaped with this um, individualism versus collectivism aspect um, that I saw firsthand exhibited from the country that I left 
about things that I could or could not do and come to the United States. By the way, another very important influence in my life. Um, this may or may not be politically correct to say it, but she influenced me deeply and this was Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrub changed my life, really had me think through very seriously about the principles that I wanted to live and embody in my, um, um, in my life. And when so, did you discover, I'm sorry, when did you discover her? Oh, I discovered, Atlas Shrub was the one pillar of strength as I had to uh, fight against my father uh, to leave the country. He didn't speak to me for six or seven years. And as a daddy's girl, that one was a huge defining moment in my life. So if I hadn't read Atlas Shrugged, if I hadn't thought through and really integrated the principles internally, I would not be the person I am today. No question about it. Uh, but coming back to it, right? I was very interested in because economics was the uh, undergraduate and masters that I had chosen, this economy level distinction was very important for me to study, right? But I didn't necessarily believe at the economy level, I immediately started at the industrial organization level. Because for me, it was the industries and how they grew that would be responsible for ultimately which economies thrive versus not. By the way, if you're looking for some really good work by a scholar that I deeply admire, Sergei Bazinski, he has a series of papers on the Japanese cotton spinning industry and why this single industry was responsible for Japan's ascension as the only country that acquired developed status being in the East, right? For much of the 1920th century. So definitely at the industry level, I was hooked. And that was also the level at which Michael had examined, Michael Goat, my advisor, had examined uh, industry level diffusion. So my contribution, my dissertation was already to get at the firm level because industries don't make decisions as I often say firms at that point in time was the way I looked at it. So if the firms are the engine of innovation and entrepreneurship in the early 1990s was my viewpoint, then I was gonna study firms. And a study of firms was in fact a black box that econ economics had still not cracked and in fact, when I spoke to Michael, whom I always went for advice, he always gave me sage advice and everything. He says, yeah, that's a good idea. We don't understand much about what is this organizational capital, as he called it. So I dug deeper at the firm level. But then, of course, any of our OB scholars will tell you, well, firms don't make decisions, individuals make decisions. And so very naturally, and in part because of the research that Raj and MB and April and I were doing, this resulted in the 2004 Best Paper Award in Employee Entrepreneurship, I started to focus much more on entrepreneurship. And going back to the comment that I had made, where you, know, you don't know initially why you're attracted to something. So I'm an industry evolution scholar. Why am I even looking at employee entrepreneurship even though it's not immediately tied to industry evolution? Well, later on, of course, and of course, because of the work that Steve Klepper was doing, because of the work that I started to do too, we realized that there is a huge link between industry evolution and entrepreneurship because it's for individuals that make decisions that then either create firms or take established firms through strategic renewal into other areas. 
So that's how I became interested in individuals. But then even at that point, right, how do individuals make decisions? They're shaped by their abilities and by their aspirations. So even more than human capital, more recently, I have been very attracted to this notion of human enterprise, which takes into account the fact that even our stored human capital is because of past investments that you make with agency. This is not just you blindly being led out there. So in one of my thought pieces, I talk about human enterprise being a very important driver of the accumulation of human capital. And if we just need to stop and pause for one minute and think of ourselves, right? Are we only our capabilities? And are we only driven by money? So my challenge with the human capital literature, even at the individual level, is that it assumes that you're taking past education and experience and you're trying to cash it in for pecuniary returns. But that's not what we as humans are. Again, we talked about in the levels of analysis, but this also then relates to disciplinary lenses. When you and I show up in our offices, we don't think, oh, I'm going to put on my economic hat today. And tomorrow I'm going to put on my sociological hat. Day after tomorrow, I'm going to put on my psychological hat, right? We come as whole individuals that is a combination of who we are, as in our abilities and our aspirations, combination of psychology and economics helps. And we create a community amongst ourselves. We create our society in the world that we want to live in. And so all of these elements definitely shape who we are and what we want to become. Yeah. Rajay, I need to um, make a confession here for, for the rest of the audience and uh, tell them how in our, in our paper together, how much I admire your passion for going deep into a literature that you were not uh, familiar with uh, before. And I, I never thought that was um, something that you would do. I had this preconception that, you know, Rajri is gonna just work on the thing she knows already and she's not gonna go deep in the literature that she doesn't know. So I was so wrong. And, but this was so rewarding because I saw the passion that you put into, into understanding new things. So I can, un I, I can now understand how you can go in different fields and borrow from these fields by, going so deep and, um, and, and, and really knowing what you are talking about. Another so, way of doing... Lisa, yeah. I, and this is in an audience which is being recorded. So please, the minute any one of you see that all I'm doing is taking what I already know and repackaging it, please shoot me. Because that's the day that I have transitioned from being a learner to learned. And I think of learned as very important in terms of a stock of knowledge. No question. Mm. More learned you are, one of the things that really deeply inspires me is um, this um, uh, saying by Sir Anthony Leggett. Uh, for a middle school camp that I had organized uh, for STEM education. And Sir Anthony Leggett is a Nobel laureate uh, in astrophysics. 
And his lecture was deeply inspiring because his point was the more you know, the more you know what you don't know. So I want to live my life as a learner. And it, it would, for me, at least in terms of principles, I would feel like I'm shortchanging not only my co-authors, but also myself. If all I'm doing is focusing only on the things I know and not discovering things that I don't know. So for me, and Deepak and I were having an email exchange earlier this morning. Uh, one of the ways that I like to even think, you know, so one of the things that all of us have to do but hate doing some, sometimes is what's the contribution of my paper? Right? How does this contribute to received knowledge? If I think of it in those terms, it actually paralyzes me because it's like, oh my gosh, how am I contributing to everybody that's out there? Do I know that this is truly new versus not, right? But there are two things that guide me in the process. One is, as you're saying, uh, initial investment to make sure that if you are going to engage in a new area, it behooves you to figure out what has been said as much as you can. Do the due diligence to figure out what has already been said, right? But then the other element then becomes, well, what did I learn? So given that I've learned all that there is already to know, rather than writing a contribution section, now I ask myself a very humble question. You know, what is it that I learned that I didn't already know before I undertook this study? And now I am, um, I am kind of comfortable in the fact that if I didn't know it, chances are it wasn't said. And if it is, was said, then reviewers, and I trust the review process, this comes back to the editorial duties and why reviewers and editors are so important too, right? Um, you trust the review process to, uh, to ex uh, unearth things that you should have known. I mean, I can share with you my review process in AMJ 2002 came at it just in economics realm, right? Mary Tripsis is one of the reviewers. She's like, technology management has done this. What are you talking about, right? Joel Baum, sociology, organizational ecology has looked at this. So what's new, right? And so, and Stephen Klepper happened to be the other person saying, I've done all of this. So what's new, right? So even if I didn't think, if I thought that there was something new, my reviewer showed me, no, what you're saying has been done old. But here is an opportunity where you can truly integrate across these three disciplines to identify what are the common themes and where is it that there are contradictions. So that has actually been one of the hallmarks of the way I do research, right? Truly integrating disparate pieces of knowledge and going deep and thinking about what assumptions is one making that the other doesn't. And then when you combine the two together, what fresh insights can you come up with, right? And so, um, I forget my train of thought here, but I hope I'm answering your question. Uh, remind me again, what is it that you said? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we were, we, you, we went on a, uh, on a tangent, on a tangent. <laughs> but you actually touch on very important uh, things because I was going to ask you, my initial, no, I was making a comment rashly and the comment was that, um, I know from uh, first-hand experience in working with you how deep you went into understanding a new uh, literature. So these are um, 
you know, this, uh, the, this was a very important uh, lesson uh, for me because uh, we can have, we can, we can say, well, I either, I'm, I'm just gonna stay and focus on what I know more and go deeper and, um, and uh, well, it's not gonna, I'm not stopping there, but I'm just going deeper in my domain. And uh, if I do, um, uh, write on a topic that I don't know, I'm going to invite uh, people with different per um, uh, expertise on. Why well, it looks like you've chosen the hard way, because as you are now um, talking about individual level choices and motivations, and you are going further away from the, uh, um, well, at least uh, part of the economics literature that was uh, um, part of your uh, training. Yes and no. Yes and no. Because I think that I still link it back to economic outcomes. And more and more, I'm starting to look at how economic institutions, political institutions, are very key factors that shape the extent to which individuals can exercise enterprise. So part of the luxury of being the founding director of the Ed Snyder Center is that I got to choose its direction. And uh, Ed Snyder happens to be one of my heroes. I still miss the fact that he, in the brief years that I knew him, he came across as a giant of uh, business and industry for me. Mm -hmm. But my very first conversation with him, I knew walking into it was make or break in terms of the center being endowed. Uh, because if he wasn't convinced that the center was right, uh, the director was right, he wasn't going to endow it. I say this because 30 minutes into the conversations, he and I got into a major, major disagreement. And that was on the naming of the center itself. He wanted to name the center, the Ed Snyder Center of Capitalism Studies. I had known that. And I was very against naming that, not because I don't believe in the tenets of capitalism, but because I think that capitalism has become a very dirty word. And so for me, and especially true to my research, which I cared about, were the twin engines that enabled upward mobility. Individual enterprise within firms, within teams, however you want to define it, and trade across markets, within teams, within organizations, or across markets. And for that, you need to have institutions. And economic institutions that support impersonal rule of law are very critical for all of this. So I haven't lost that aspect. And many of my papers, the many papers that you're saying that I'm doing, several of them are looking at that institution. Right. So adding that institution and uh, maybe uh, policy um, yes. implications to your uh, research. I used to read. Yeah. I used to hate in economics. I know you, you just give me all of these ideas that I have to share with you, right? I used to hate in economics having to write what are the policy implications. Policy implications. I could care less when I was in economics about what the policy implications are. And now as a strategy scholar, I am really engaged in what the policy implications are. Mm -hmm. Well, we have uh, many conversations in the field about relevance and, uh, and uh, rigor, and many people are concerned that rigor can be a detriment to relevance. Would you like to comment on this? You just, uh, that was a question I wanted to ask later, but. False dichotomy. 
really. Uh, uh, and again, you know, <laughs> honestly, I think that I hope what you've yeah. seen in at least my very spontaneous answers to uh, all of your questions, I care deeply about the phenomenon, the issue that I'm trying to examine, right? And so that for me becomes relevant because if we are taking seriously our role of social scientists, we're trying to explain human behavior and its outcomes, right? If that's the case, then we should care about relevance because the people, the firms, and the industries that we study do have, you know, they, they are our empirical counterparts. So relevance is going to be one of the defining things, but what defines us as being different from the Ed Snyders of the world who are intellectual giants in industry is that they are professional businessmen, but we are professional intellectuals. And so as professional intellectuals, we need to engage deeply into the rigor of our profession so that we are providing the frameworks, the theories, the holistic ones that when they listen to, in fact, some of my best papers, when I talk to managers, CEOs, founders, they say, yes, that resonates with me, right? That in fact is one of the best gauges you can have of whether or not your work is right, if you will. So if you're doing work rigorously and it's relevant, you get away feeling like, you know, this has been personally gratifying for you. And at the end of the day, I'm very selfish. I care about my own personal gratification. Rajari, many people um, here ask the same question in, in, in different ways. So um, I guess the, the one of the questions that, um, we all know, want to have the answer to is, how have you been so successful and consistent in publishing? And are there any tips about your choice of topics, choice of journals, choice of co-authors, the review process that you would like to share? And the, and the, um, and the related question is, um, how do you manage your time? Because uh, just to quote, you know, Someone said earlier, ah, it was Deepak. He said more seriously, I love to hear Rajari advice on time management and prioritization. Um, how many hours Rajari has in her day, right? So there are two questions here, but let's start with, um, you know, your piece of advice on uh, your, uh, as a rich Bakadoku say, give us the benefit of your wisdom in terms of uh, publishing uh, successfully. And then uh, that should include also um, advice so, on time management. So two things that come to mind as framing um, uh, thoughts. One is something that Michelle Gelfin, who is a psychologist, a premier psychologist at University of Maryland once said, Vivian, was it in your dissertation meeting? It might have been. Uh, one of the things that she said is as difficult as it is to get something published, it's impossible to get it unpublished. And your name is on that paper, right? Which relates to a second point, which I heard Sarah Saraswati say very beautifully in uh, the academy, that uh, conference that Yong, you had uh, created. See, it's a family of, it's a family and friends uh, type of a relationship here. 
But what I really appreciated Sarah saying is differentiate between objective functions and constraints. Your objective is you want to create new knowledge and do research. Honestly, we could be making a lot more money in industry using our intellectual efforts there. Right? The reason why we chose academia is because we're passionate about these things. You know, this fits well into our aspirations. But you know, you, your objective function then is to create new knowledge. Your constraint is you need to have a tenure position in order to do so. And until you get tenure, you're always going to worry about whether or not you have a firm job, right? So, but it's important, I think, to distinguish between what you need to do in order to satisfy the constraints without losing sight of what your true objective function is, which is why the twin sayings become kind of the framing references um, that in retrospect, at least, I see that I've done. Um, I worked hard, no question about it, right? And I found people that were very aligned with our, so one of the things that I will do is I credit my getting tenure just as much to Raj and MB as I do to my mentorship that I received from Michael, David Audrish, and um, 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 Barry Bayes. So in every one of these things, and again, you know, it's different preferences, different strokes for different folks. I get energized by the brainstorming uh, and the back and forth between co-authors as we're integrating and synthesizing our knowledge, even as each and every one of us is taking the domain that they're very good at. So going back to this very formative relationship with Raj and MB on the AMJ 2002 paper, um, that I wrote. Uh, I always said that, you know, and even since then, I don't think I've ever met anyone who was as deeply knowledgeable about econometrics as Raj was. I don't think I have met a sharper theoretical mind than MB, and I still miss him every day for that point. And I said that I was the jack of all trades, master of none, right? So in our three-person co-authorship, you know, but I, I think I'm selling myself short there too. But one of the things that I think worked beautifully and magic in that three co-authorship is that each and every one of us was very comfortable in our own domain, but were very willing to bridge with the other person too. So even as I say that MB was theoretically one of the highest minds. He was very deeply engaged, even as Raj and I were cranking out and doing the analysis and stuff and thinking through how it meant. By the way, I also believe that one of the things that we don't do well in our profession and our junior scholars pay the price for it is most of our research, even in economics, even in sociology and psychology is abductive. It is not deductive. We do our research in an abductive way, but we then force ourselves, sometimes our journals, and I'm guilty of that as a journal editor too, try to uh, take away from that, is we force ourselves into this hypothesis deduction model. But most of the work that we do is abductive, and I think that the abduction way is a great way to go, and we should embrace that much more. But uh, to your point, as far as co-authorships and publishing, the first secret to the sauce is a find co-authors that are aligned with you and then make sure that you guys are all matching effort for effort 
and you're not just creating these separate silos. I'll do the back end, you do the front end. I've done a couple of papers like that. I'm ashamed of writing those papers now in retrospect because in reading them way back early in my career, I can see, wait a minute, there's a disconnect between what was written earlier and then what was written later, right? Not that we didn't read each other, but there was not that seamless integration of theory and empirics that should have been there too. Uh, so that's what I have as it relates to the philosophy on publishing, right? Take each project, think about not just one paper. I have been a big believer in investing in major data sets because data sets allow you to examine relationships that you may not otherwise be able to examine. So I've been a big fan of creating original data sets, even if it's compiled from uh, different sources, going deep into it, what are the data trying to tell you? And that often requires you to go across methods too. So we, don't, we didn't talk about the fact that, you know, I'm multidisciplinary now, multi-levels of analysis, but I'm also deeply multi-method now. So I'm a huge fan these days of historical methods. Uh, again, thanks to things that I've learned from colleagues such as Sonali Shah or Sergey Briginsky, right? Uh, they've gotten that appreciation of where it is that the quantitative data are not gonna give you a, an understanding of the mechanisms and you can only take identification so far. And I can, I can point holes in any you know, uh, causal analysis type of things that you're trying to do because you can always go one level down and say, we don't know. So the point is in any one paper, you need to define the boundaries and you need to define what you're doing and what you're not doing. And be very clear about it because that is where the thoughtful future research and limitation section is done. Uh, I would highly recommend for those of you who are thinking about writing and stuff, the book, you may or may not agree with her philosophy, but The Art of Nonfiction by Ayn Rand is one of the best papers that we can read in order to write good papers because she talks about the fact that if it's an important question, then any one paper is not gonna do justice to it. So you need to define your boundaries very, very clearly in what that paper is. Uh, David Kirsch once said to me that, uh, you know, one of the things that he liked about the papers that I wrote with multiple of my teams and stuff, he said, one idea, one paper. That was one of the things that he really appreciated about it. And then across multiple papers, you can now create a body of knowledge. And more recently, I've actually challenged the paper that I'm very proud of, so the one that I'm talking to you about with MB and Raj and April that won the Employee Entrepreneurship 2004 Best Paper Award, very proud of it. 2019, Raj and Sonali and I go back and examine it and tell you how, why, why, where we were wrong in that first paper. So again, it's, it's, a, it's a conversation, it's an intellectual journey you're having with yourself, your past self, and with other scholars that are equally engaged and interested in it. But you cannot sacrifice on aspirations and you cannot sacrifice on abilities and truly putting in the work that needs to be done. It's hard work, no question, but it's fun work. So time management, Deepak, my best time is getting up at four in the morning because that's when I'm most well-rested. I am at my best thinking capacity beyond 10 a.m. I'm already wasted, right? So I try to preserve those times as much as I can because that's my time of doing deep thinking. After 10 a.m. is when I have meetings with my co-authors. Uh, by the way, joke out here, 
Michael Gord had the opposite schedule, right? So I'm an early morning person, always was a morning person. Michael woke up at 11.30 noon, right? And then he would wake me up as I'm his dissertation, doing my dissertation at 9.30, 10 at night. Oh, did I wake you up, Rashri? Sorry, but let's talk about this. And then he would just go in and I'm expected to, uh, to be engaged in there. It took me the courage of first year assistant professor when I got back to him by calling him at 9 a.m. in the morning and waking him up. So then we came to this peaceful coexistence where we would work with each other between noon and four. And the same thing happened with Rajan MD too, right? And so you define which period you're most productive in doing research and you guard it. You try not to let anything come in there. And then you think about which periods you benefit from the interaction, the dimension, uh, you know, and that gives you energy too. So you, you'll see that most of my meetings are in the afternoon time and stuff. And by 5.36, I want to wedge out in front of a TV. That's what I want to do for fun. Call me boring, whatever it is. By 8 a.m., 9 a.m., I'm in bed. So Mina knows this because she and I have the very opposite schedule too. Does that answer your question, Deepa? Yes, it does, Rajri. Yes. We're going to try to wake up at 4 a.m., all of us. No, don't. You're <laughs> bothering me. <laughs> Figure out what no, I'm joking. No, I'm not. I haven't missed, uh, missed what you just said. That we need to find our uh, the time when we are most productive. But, um, you know, I've been trying to do that um, with more or less success because I, I remember, I it's think uh, back in the day, it was uh, 3 a.m., so. <laughs> by, the way, by the way, one of my most fun op-eds in Forbes is stop watching the clock for work-life balance. Hmm. Um, and uh, I still can tell you how I start that op-ed because that op-ed literally wrote itself. And it starts off with saying, I have more uh, you know, sometimes kids say the darndest thing, like my older daughter who said to me, I have more stress and responsibility in my life than you do. And this is a teenager, right? And what I, and then the article goes on, says, huh, is what my normally articulate self could muster in response because racing through my head was the fact that I was a single caregiver of a husband that was debilitated and in bed. Uh, I was managing two teenagers and making sure that their active lifestyle did not get compromised. I was directing a center and I was trying to keep my own research and my PhD students going. And here's this little chit of a girl that turns around and says, she's got more stress and responsibility in her life. But you know what? She was right. And we compared hours in a day and we both realized that at the end of the day, Deepak, I have 24 hours in a day and so do you. The reason why she was more stressed than me, in spite of all of these things that I had to do, is that I had more wannas and less have tos. She had more have tos as a kid, as opposed to wannas. And so what creates stress in our lives is when that balance of mind is off. When you feel like you're doing things you don't want to do, but have to do. So, rather than balancing, and that's what this op-ed talks about and gives some tips on where it is that you can create your balance of mind in, in adjusting 
the wanas and the haftas. And even the haftas become wanas when you think about the larger purpose of what you're trying to achieve. Right. I didn't know that about your daughter, but I will keep it in That's mind. Right. <laughs> you will win any argument with anybody, hands down, no question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Smart kid. <laughs> Rajari, um, we can go on forever. But, um, I talk uh, too much. Is that what you're saying? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that is very interesting um, what you are saying. And you know, if you were uh, Brad or you were Seth or you were Martin or even Maka, I don't know if she's there, you wouldn't have let me go by and take him <laughs> in that way. You would have dissed me. <laughs> that would have been a wide open opening for them. That, that was a that was a fat, that was a fat pitch down the middle, uh, Denise. So that was a, that that could have been a knockout of the park there. Okay, so uh, let me say what I wanted to say. It's this is, but I also uh, have to do a couple of things. And Samina has reminded me that now is the time for us to uh, take a picture because we want to uh, uh, post a picture with our guests on. Uh, on social media. So Samina uh, or uh, Jao, I don't know uh, who is supposed I'm to take here. A, I'm okay. picture. Okay. Is everybody so supposed to take a picture? Yes. On? Yeah. So um, if you are comfortable and uh, if you, for some of you, maybe lunchtime, but uh, do uh, please, um, you can um, uh, make your video, uh, put your video on and we can take a picture. And um, how about I'll count? If that's good. And another one. So okay. Everyone could, everyone could look at the screen, and um, sorry, if everyone could look at the screen, and then we'll we'll take a picture. Okay. So on one, two, three, cheese. Okay. Super. Okay. Thank you. I want to take a picture too. Okay. Um, so I, I think you it's keep the um, videos on so that I can feel like in our Q and A. Of course, <laughs> all of us teaching on Zoom, we know how it feels like to have uh, uh, only names and an empty screen in face of uh, in front of us. I would like to um, open the discussion for um, to uh, I open the floor to the audience and. Um, you know, as I said, I, I have many, many questions here on, uh, but, but it's only fair that uh, all of you can ask questions. So um, there are some, some questions on the chat. Uh, feel free to continue to send questions uh, on the chat and then I can either call on you. I'll try to combine them by topic. So I can either then call on you or repeat, repeat the question my, uh, myself. And um, towards the end, we will also have time for some fun questions. So uh, keep this in mind. Don't uh, despair if we, if we are talking too much about research because we're gonna have to uh, get Rashri talking about her private life, but that's gonna come towards the end. Okay, so... Um, So Abby has asked a question. What topics, uh, Abby, would you like to repeat a question? Um, I don't see you. Are you still around? 
Okay, I'm gonna say that question uh, if he's not around. So what topics, questions at the intersection of entrepreneurship and public policy excites you right now? So uh, the topics that are really interesting to me and Audra is here too, um, as is Sojin. Uh, both of them are current doctoral students. Uh, and again, like I said, I learn a lot from my doctoral students. So uh, in Sojin's case, in fact, Sojin was an MB student uh, before uh, she joined uh, Maryland uh, after MB passed away. But what Sojin alerted me to is this notion of mission-oriented grand challenges, um, because she was very interested in examining industries that evolved because uh, the government was the lead user. Uh, so penicillin, for instance, was an example that uh, was created because of wartime needs in the World War II. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, Sonali, um, uh, um, Maka and I were also doing a lot of research on the incubation of industries. So you end up seeing that many of the industries that are incubated are often not just because of supply side technological shocks, but because of unmet user needs. And so in the area of policy meets entrepreneurship meets innovation, I think that is a rich uh, area that I'm very interested in. The uh, other area which uh, Audra has me clued on is this notion that in developing countries, uh, there are some institutional voids, but those institutional voids can actually be opportunities for entrepreneurship and Audra's research is on mobile money where she's examining how this is a truly born global industry, but you end up seeing that it takes, even though it was first introduced in a developed country, precisely because of well-established institutions, it didn't get traction there. Where it did get traction is in the developing regions where financial access to the unbanked was a huge issue. So it solved a major problem from there. So you can see a theme there as it relates to policy meets entrepreneurship that is personally exciting to me. And in that, uh, in fact, my, my op-ed today uh, is on an active mind and where is it that I had to challenge some blind spots in my own thinking. And you know, it used to be that I would think about entrepreneurship as largely for-profit and that's all that mattered. But uh, you know, I'm realizing that in fact, social innovation and social entrepreneurship is not just necessarily about profit being evil and nonprofit being good, but this is about each and every one of us defining what problems are deeply meaningful to us and how we take that on. And then whether we do it in a for-profit setting, in a nonprofit setting, or in the public setting as being important states Right? So the biggest social innovation of all, as far as I'm concerned, is the founding principles of this country. That was a huge social innovation caused because people who were public statesmen were willing to die for certain principles. So for me, it all comes together, and if you define it that way, and that's what's fascinating. Give me one second. I'm just going to tell my uh, house cleaning person to not have the... Uh, uh, vacuum on. Okay, so if I can just meet, leave my own meet the scholar session. One second. I'm gonna mute you.
Yes, so um, now it's a good moment for, uh, for everyone to um, ask questions on the chat. And uh, next, uh, I'm gonna ask you, Buki. Yes, yes, okay. Uh, so Buki, uh, could you please ask your uh, questions? Be before you do that, let me make a comment. So um, I believe Rajri, you recently uh, wrote um, an op-ed on uh, informs about your uh, uh, the, the research that you mentioned on social enterprising and the title of that um, article is, is called Instead of Open or Closed, Dial Your Mind to Active. So would you like to comment uh, a little bit on this? What do you mean by active mind? Because I think it relates so much to, um, to the way you are looking at your research um, these days. So yeah, I think implicitly our conversation for the first hour is uh, exemplifying that particular principle. Again, um, you know, lots and lots of scholars and philosophers have shaped my thinking. Uh, Eric Hoffer is another one that I um, really appreciate. One of his, my favorite quotes from him is, in times of change, learners will inherit the earth while the learned will find themselves hopelessly ill-equipped uh, to deal with a world that no longer exists, right? Um, this notion between the difference between active versus open versus closed mind is something actually that Ayn Rand spoke about uh, several years ago when she said that open versus closed creates a very false dichotomy. You definitely don't want to be a closed mind, especially if you're in our profession, because that means that you're rigid, you're not necessarily open to reason and uh, objective new data. Uh, and the, the opposite is, of course, an open mind. But this loses the fact that an open mind can also be something that's rudderless, right? So you don't have any serious conviction. Uh, an active mind is one that has processed best available information to it, not necessarily to the world. Just because their knowledge exists out in the world doesn't mean that it's new to you, right? And each and every one of us has to process the knowledge that's out there and make sense of it before we can integrate and act on it. So uh, an active mind is one that actively processes knowledge, forms opinions, comes up with the best um, uh, you know, insights that you can at that point in time, but is open to the fact that, or is actively thinking about listening, synthesizing, and then acting. So those are the three steps that I outlined in this Forbes article. And I've given you multiple examples of how, um, you know, and the social innovation being the most recent one, about how I'm actively, you know, this principle has helped me shape and actually not feel bad about the fact that if you're going to challenge me and prove that I'm wrong on a paper that I wrote 15, 20 years ago, please tell me more about it, right? Because I want to learn and I want to figure out what is it that I had wrong that I can then become better and integrate and synthesize moving further. So the sense of, and psychologically, this means that you have to A, have the courage, and B, that courage then also stops you from needlessly feeling shame or guilt, or, oh my God, how could I make that mistake? The mistakes happen, and especially the honest mistakes, you have the option to correct it. So that's what an active mind is. 
This reminds me of a conversation I had at the SMS a couple of years ago when I said, oh, what, what if we meet uh, scholars who have proposed a, a concept or they have written a paper about the phenomena and then um, so senior established and then young scholars who are challenging and we put them together and someone said, no, this would be a catastrophe. Let's not do that. The field is not ready. You just uh, reinforce my opinion that that would have been a good exercise. Rajuri, we, we do want to take advantage of your experience uh, with the uh, review process and um, in uh, mentoring uh, junior scholars. So I'm gonna let Buki ask her questions and then we're gonna go over, um, I have to be fair with everyone. So we're gonna go over the questions that are in the chat right now. Buki? Can't hear you, Buki. I saw her. No, she's here. Yes. She's talking, yes. but I couldn't hear her. We cannot hear you. And you are unmuted, but we cannot hear you. Okay. Would you like me to ask the question for you? We can come back to her if she can figure that out. Um, um, okay. So, um, So, so actual we, question we, we, from Brad, we, how do you deal with co-authors, both junior and senior to you when their efforts begin to lag? Brad, you should know this more than anybody else. Um, I call you, I track you down. So funny story. Um, My efforts never lag, they just- they No, no, so funny story. Done. And I hope that Charlie forgives me for calling him out on this. But Charlie Williams, who's at Bocconi, he was going through a really rough patch at one point in time. And his way of addressing that rough patch was to just ignore all calls. Uh, and so I was trying to get a hold of him. You know, I was calling him, emailing him, no response whatsoever. And then my daughter, Tara, I remember the one I said is too smart for her own booth sometimes. She, you know, and this was still back in the days when we didn't have smartphones, but dumb phones. And she said, mom, if you, you know, and she was just talking to me randomly about something. And she says, if you want to be an anonymous scholar, before you make the call, just dial star six, nine or something like that. I said, oh, that's the way to do it. So then I dial star six, nine and call Charlie and lo and behold, he picked up the phone. <laughs> so we still laugh about the fact that I was just relentless in catching hold of him. But that was important because one of the things and this is also important to keep in mind. As co-authors, you actually, at least for me, my co-authors are my family members. Uh, particularly my deep relationships, they're not only close friends, but they become family. And you know what? Every one of us, life happens. You go up, you go down, there are things that are happening. So we need to be there as each other's support structure. Often being a support structure means that you end up being there and listening and making accommodations. But sometimes being a support structure means that you pull the person out of the funk that they're in by whatever means is necessary. Sometimes it can be, you know, being kind doesn't mean being nice. That's another Forbes op-ed that I've written, right? When being kind is not, or when being nice is not kind. Uh, being kind implies that you're thinking about the other person and what's right for them at that moment in time. 
And sometimes it can be having blunt conversations that can even hurt and potentially jeopardize your relationship with them. But you need to do it because that's how true relationships get sustained. Okay. Buki, would you like yeah. to ask your question now? Yes. Can you guys hear me now? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Sorry about that. So Rajvi, thank you so much for doing the, this session. And thank you for sharing about your history because uh, some of what you just said about you and your dad, I can totally relate to a lot of that in many ways. Um, but I'm going to get straight to the question. With your very extensive experience um, publishing, being an editor and everything, I, I remember that in my first or second year, you, I was in a session at AOM where you talked about how to make the review process work for you. But I was there and a lot of everything you were talking about at the time really went over my head because I hadn't had any opportunity to be in that process yet. Now, as a junior scholar just about to start my career, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind, if it's possible, if you can find a way to summarize some of those key points that you might have shared at the time about how to make the review process work for you so it isn't this um, very scary experience that it tends to be for those of us who are just starting. Thank you very much. Yeah, so actually, very easy answer. I think that everything that MB Raj, April and I wrote in the REAP rewards, how to respond to reviewer comments still holds true. Um, I found that that reflection piece still guides my review process today um, in uh, how I approach it. Um, and the REAP rewards, each stands for a letter, right? Read, E is emote, get your emotions, feel all of the emotions, they're part of you, don't deny them, and then get them out of the way. And then you can start to arrange your comments, parse the comments, figure out uh, all of the different processes, right? And then identifying, this is the hard one, Seth said this uh, at a re more recent one. I often talk about how the, the thing that you need to do is identify which of these comments are critical to address, which of them are tangential, and which of them are contestable. And one of the things that Seth did say is, yeah, I've heard Rashri say this, but in practice, it's very, you know, sometimes difficult to figure out which bin. That's true, it is difficult. But that's where the brainstorming process helps. You can start off with engaging with each and every comment critically, right? And think that, well, if this is a critical comment, then how might I go about addressing it? And so even at the end of it, if you end up um, then classifying it as either tangential or contestable, you have given it the due thought that it deserves. Um, one recent conversation, and Audra was part of, I believe, this conversation, uh, is where um, you know Sonali said, and something to, uh, I don't know who said this, but uh, you know this thought that you can take, you can dismiss reviewer concerns without dismissing the reviewer, um, and and that, but you cannot dismiss when reviewers feel dismissed is when you haven't even engaged with them, or with the seriousness of their concerns, right? So that's when they feel dismissed and they feel like you have not necessarily listened to what they've said or responded in an appropriate way. But if you take it seriously and say, okay, I can see that this is your perspective. Now let me explain to you why this is my perspective and why I disagree with you, right? Or why I believe that this is a tangential comment. 
give good reasons why. And so convince yourself that it is tangential or contestable first. And then you can write that reviewer response that seriously engages with them. And multiple reviewers will, in, and one of the things I really appreciate is reviewers are authors and good reviewers like good authors appreciate when their premises are being challenged, right? Because we're all working off of our best knowledge, which may have holes in them. So, so long as you're pointing them to objective facts, you're pointing them and giving good reasons why, you can convince and engage with them. Even if you're saying to them, you don't know what you're talking about. You just don't tell them, you don't know. What <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Rajan. Rajan, I think this is a good uh, uh, time to ask you, uh, what do you love more, uh, most about being an editor at the SMJ? Oh, when uh, manuscripts uh, come to bloom, right? I, in fact, had one experience this morning when I was writing a decision letter. Uh, when you have exactly what I was talking about, right, where authors are of high quality and not quality as in innate smarts, right, or having it right in the first place, uh, and reviewers are of high quality, as in, again, they're using their minds actively. And the comments that the reviewers provide are constructive, critical, but constructive, right? I heard uh, this said recently in an editor's meeting. Uh, this is a person that develops, uh, uh, that believes that developing articles is by pointing weaknesses. Or this is a person that develops articles by providing potential solutions, right? Uh, this gets back to what um, I think it was, uh, um, not Ezra Zuckerman, I think it was Hernandez uh, at MIT. He was talking about this distinction between a consumer of research versus a producer of research. As a consumer of research and our PhD courses teach us very well, right? Let's look at a, a, a seminal article and let's find five things that are wrong with it, right? Each and every one of us, and by the way, in any contest on uh, which, what are the holes in an article, including mine, I'll win hands down, right? I, I will point out to you all of the problems in my own paper, correct? And of course, by definition, that's what editors and reviewers end up doing. They get this expertise to be able to see the larger view and then what's missing. That's not what producing research is about, right? Producing research is about saying, yeah, okay, fine. There are all of these holes, but is this the best thing that you can do given the state of the art in terms of data, in terms of theory, in terms of method? And if that's the standard that you're using, now it is allowing again for that discovery process to work, right? So when reviewers and authors come at it with that attitude, but then are willing to seriously engage on things, and then you just see the synergies bloom. And as an editor, you can guide, you can shape, but then it's just poetry in motion as far as I'm concerned. That makes my day. Wonderful. Um, I've seen Noor and Puyan uh, asking some questions earlier. If you are still around, would you like to speak up, please? Um, uh, let me see. 
Puyan is here. Hi, Noor, yes, please. Yes, Noor, can you go ahead and then we're going to have Puyan. <laughs> hi, Puyan. Yeah, hi, Rajasri. Uh, thank you so much uh, for this. Uh, like, my question is in your earlier years, how did you make decisions on which project to take on and which project to, like, maybe later on or something? Lots of mistakes. I got horror stories to share with you about uh, um, co-author relationships going terribly wrong. Um, and said co-authors are esteemed members of the economics and or strategy profession. Uh, and I can share with you mistakes that I will never make in terms of choice of both projects and co-authors without uh, necessarily naming them. Um, but um, how did I choose? It's a trial and error process, right? You, you don't know. And so one of the things that I really appreciate is research that, um, so in reflection, how would I choose if I were uh, going back in time and telling myself what to do? I would read the paper that uh, Arnaldo Camufo, uh, Chiara Spina, and Alfonso Gambardella just wrote on the scientific method to entrepreneurship, because I think that that approach works for all of us. Uh, the scientific method is really about thinking in terms of first principles, taking a particular project and then, or anything that is decision-making under uncertainty. And for sure, creating new knowledge, choosing projects, research projects, means you don't know what the guaranteed outcome is, right? Sometimes data don't behave, sometimes co-authors don't live up to your expectations. There are all kinds of behavioral and uh, environmental reason for best of your efforts, things aren't gonna pan out. But the best thing to do in these kinds of situations is really to decompose the problem. Uh, be very, very clear about what is the source of the problem. Is it a co-author issue? If it's a co-author issue, is it an ability issue or is it a willingness issue, right? Because both of them are going to have different solutions to it. Uh, if it is a data issue, Again, you know, so that's what I'm saying. So what is the core issue at stake out here that's causing this project to go awry? So once you decompose it at that level, then you can create hypotheses as they talk about, right? And these hypotheses can then be kind of tested and they can be tested by either doing or by thinking, whichever way you wanna do it. So I find that that process can be very helpful in how we approach research projects. Thank you. Thank you. Puyan? So, thank you. Talking about Bokoni. <laughs> so, Bokoni alumni. So, thank you very much, Vatri, and also for the session. Very insightful. I am going to ask a question that I feel you somehow, somehow answered also a part of it. It's about this great advice that you made today, which is follow ideas, not disciplines. And I think many of us actually really connect that and get excited by that and like that. But as junior faculty members, sometimes I think we are at least afraid that tenure system is in a way that does somehow may discount achievements in other disciplines. How would we, what's your, what's your advice to kind of combine this tenure system with, the, with this great advice? Thank you. Yeah, so I can say that 25, 30 years later um, that I'm an interdisciplinary scholar. When I started off, I was an economist, right? And more than an economist, I was an IO economist, industrial organizational economist. 
I had a choice of either going into labor or going into uh, industrial organization. Um, now I can see the connections between the two. Then it wasn't clear to me, right? So you always want to start, again, going back to an issue that I brought up later, right? You want to start with a particular concrete topic or research that is going to be the focus of your attention for the next three to four years. And then in that domain, you want to become an expert in either the phenomena and typically both the phenomena and a particular disciplinary point of view. Because it's hard enough as it is to crack all of the issues, it is extremely difficult to have become an expert on multiple disciplines and as a junior scholar have the ability to discern what assumptions are being made in what disciplinary thought and then how might you challenge them? That's when you're taking on more than you can chew at that particular point in time. So the, what I would say to you is let the journey be the destination, right? Don't try to do too much in one thing itself, right? Take on a particular, and it's, it's completely okay for you to turn around and say, I am going to examine this phenomena using this theoretical lens. Okay, that's the boundary that I'm drawing around it. But then go deep in that boundary. Make sure that you are completely, you're not creating straw men to make a contribution, that you're truly engaging with it, right? If you decide to integrate across disciplines, now you can sacrifice some depth for more breadth, but then it behooves you to think about what are the intersections. And where is it that that breadth issue is your focus of attention? What is it that you're challenging at the integration? And what is it that you're contributing at the integration, right? There are multiple ways to write good papers. That's the beauty of it. So I'm not, a, you know, should you go general? Should you go special? Yes. Depends on what you're interested in. Right? But then whatever it is that you're interested in, Figure out that you know it or you find co-authors that know it very well. And I have always learned through co-authors. You know, when I went into experimental economics, I connected with Rachel Croson, who was a preeminent experimental economist, because I knew that trying to do all of it on my own the first time around was going to be inefficient and ineffective. But what I did do is I kept asking and engaging with Rachel. Why did you do what you did? What are the principles that you use? We created PDWs so that we could introduce experimental economics. By the way, this is another way that you can engage yourself. Often people think STR, uh, Academy, SMS, PDWs, you know, everybody, the, the most valuable sessions are actually the workshops and the PDWs, right? The, in terms of learning, yourself. The, the presentation sessions are actually for consumption value. PDWs and workshops are for producer values. That's where I learned most of these things. And like I said, as a 10-year-old, I was teaching everybody else so that I could learn a concept, right? Remember that co concept that I made, right? So I always learned when I had to teach someone. So I engaged in PDW sessions and, you know, more recently we had a PDW on machine learning and I want to go in there, not because I'm going to be a deep expert in that issue, but I want to know enough 
that I can engage with people who are deep experts and I can still gather the fundamentals of what they're saying. And that's how I learn. And then if I'm more interested in it, I'll get deeper in it. Thank you very much. I believe in shortcuts. Great co-authors are the best shortcuts of all. PhD students, huge shortcuts. Audra and Sojin are the ones that are devoting years of their lives gathering these cool data. I just get to write off. Rajri, because um, the next question will fit well with what you just uh, said. What would be the advice that you give to junior colleagues as they write their research statements for letter writers for the tenure process? It relates to identity, right? Yeah, yeah, no, no. Sit back and think, reflect, allow your mind to make uh, formally the connections that your subconscious had already made. Uh, be reflective um, and talk to other people, right? You can learn a lot about yourself uh, based on what your trusted uh, co-authors co and colleagues will tell you is a unique defining aspect of you and your research. And then think about it and then make the connections. Um, I, I think good research statements have a arc to their story. They have a narrative and the narrative does not need to be necessarily in chronological order of the way you approach these research papers. In 2008, I did this. In 2012, I did this. No, the narrative and the arc needs to be on how the concepts map onto each other. So, and then you can go ahead and think about buckets. So I'm a big believer also in visualization, right? So many of you know, I'm a big fan of draw your Venn diagrams. If you've got more than two or three areas of interest, how much of this is overlapping versus non-overlapping. So forcing yourself to put that down and thinking about which are the areas, it comes back to redefining some of these areas too, right? So you may think, you may start off with saying, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing work on employee entrepreneurship and I'm doing work on industry evolution, right? So then these are two separate buckets. Is there any overlap? Do I want there to be any? If there isn't any overlap, why do these things meet on a higher level, right? Even though they may be, so what is the higher order team? Uh, those are questions that you keep asking yourself and then you redefine, and then you rework all of it. And then you examine what are the connections theoretically or empirically. If it is a data set that defines the connections, embrace the fact that it's a data set that allows you to examine different uh, issues. Uh, you know, Brad's here, I'm reminded of the fact that as I was reading through a lot of the work that he was doing, what struck me was his focus on social issues. So for him, the theme is social issues, entrepreneurship meets strategy, meets IT, right? And then he will use multiple different data sets to address different social issues, but that's the running theme, right? Whatever it is that your theme is, uh, if it's a issue that is of burning importance to you. For me, it was a data set on industry evolution that I had compiled, spending three years of my life doing, and then I just needed to mine it and go deeper into the data and see what it's telling me. Any and all of those are options. What's not an option is thinking, reflecting, and integrating. 
There was a related question in uh, uh, sent before when the org, when the when the participants uh, sign up for the session, and that question was how can uh, one overcome uh, status constraints in career advancement? You coming from economics um, and not being in the <laughs> strategy field, maybe you can. Oh, more than that, right? I came from <laughs> University at Buffalo, uh, which if you didn't graduate from the top 20 schools, economics department, good luck trying to find a academic job uh, in a research setting. So I started off in University of Central Florida, which was a teaching institution. What was good, however, is that it was a teaching institution that aspired to increase its research prominence. And what was even better is that they gave us junior faculty complete entrepreneurial latitude in terms of hiring and recruiting new people. Uh, so for me at least, and whether or not you have that fortune or not, if you are in a high status position, uh, you know, Janet, uh, Janet Berkowitz and I were commenting on this lack of networks versus networks, because I had zero networks coming into strategy. Not only did I come from a low status UCF Institute, I had made it to Illinois. Uh, Anju Seth, I still remember, uh, said to me uh, that because I was, uh, Glenn Hecker and I came in as assistant professors at Illinois. I gave up tenure and promotion at UCF to start off as a fresh assistant professor. And I still remember, because I was good at negotiations even then, by the way. Um, I still remember trying to negotiate with them and say, hey, look, I've got all of these publications. Uh, doesn't that count for more than uh, the salary of a rookie assistant professor? And I still remember I'm just that saying to me, Rashri, the fact that you have those papers in economics, even though they're in the AERs and the review of economics and statistics, puts you at par with Glenn Hetker as a rookie coming out of Michigan, as far as looking. Right. And so that was a harsh lesson to learn. Fine. But you know what? In the seven years that Glenn very deservedly went from assistant to associate professor, I went from assistant professor to endowed professor. Right. And so the point that I'm trying to get at out here is bank on your own hard work, ability and willingness to do what it takes rather than status early in your career. Status is an important signal precisely because people don't have individual level signals on your own ability, right? So for me, what Anju was saying is your signal of UCF is a huge negative, right? Your signal of your own personal ability to provide this makes up for it. But off the top, we don't know which of you are going to be more successful. So we're going to treat you at par, which is fine. So figure out where is it that you should um, compensate for status. And one of the things I always remember Janet saying and remarking is that sometimes status can create a comfort zone for you, right? So as she said, coming out of the Berkeley uh, community, she stayed in that community. That was her safety net, that was her comfort zone, right? For me, I had no community. So in some ways I was liberated. And I could figure out who were my networks and who were the people. And now I'm told that I can be adopted in the Berkeley Mafia too, because I have so many friends there. Right? 
right? So that, that's what I have to say about status. Thank you, Rajri. Now we're gonna change uh, entirely the <laughs> perspective and I'm gonna ask Salem to ask his question. And as we, uh, before, before I let him uh, speak, just give me one second. Um, we are two hour, one hour, 50 minutes into our conversation. Um, uh, please shoot if you have any last questions to, uh, for Rajri. Otherwise, I'm gonna uh, let uh, Samina ask a couple of questions where the, Samina and I will, uh, will have very uh, short questions for Rajri and we're gonna have uh, an exchange. <laughs> Salem. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Rajri. Uh, first, I would actually like to ask you, what are the things that you wish you have done or learned before you becoming uh, a PhD student? Um, I'm, I'm actually asking this because I'm in the process of applying to PhD programs. So I wanted to know or have an idea of, um, you know, things to consider um, and things that you probably have uh, as I said, wish to have done before getting in the process or actually being part of the PhD program. Yeah. So as I've already said to you, I don't think I should be the person that you should emulate because I did everything wrong uh, going into the PhD process, right? Uh, no, and I mean that very seriously. Uh, that handicapped me. I was successful in spite, not because, of everything that I did uh, prior to my PhD. Uh, so what would I do if I were a PhD student aspiring to be taken seriously and taking full advantage of my capabilities? Um, first of all, I would go ahead. So I'm a big fan now of a pre-PhD um, research experience. Uh, I'm going to pick on Seth here, right? Seth was my undergraduate student. Um, you know, he approached me immediately after his undergraduate class with me. And I still remember, as crystal clear, the email that he sent me. He said, you know, Professor Agarwal, I was in my summer, I'm waiting, uh, you know, thinking about what I want to do. I have this very secure job in accounting. I know that's the case, but I wanted to explore research. And I remember you talked to me, you talked in our class about this employee entrepreneurship paper, and I read it, and I was hooked. Very honestly, I don't remember, I, all of the statistics went over my head. I say that because now I go to set for all kinds of statistical advice, right? Um, but he said, but I'm hooked. What can I do to learn more about the process, right? So identify a common connection with a person uh, that is willing to provide you that kind of internship experience, right? Some of the best uh, pre-PhD students actually go through and engage in that kind of an experience. Um, uh, talk to other PhD students. Uh, more than talking to, so Justin Frake, who's at Michigan, brilliant idea on his part. He says it's because he was intimidated to not want to reach out to all of the people that were already professors, but brilliant strategy. He reached out to the PhD students themselves. You, you'd be surprised as to how many PhD students will tell you, don't come to our program, and here's why, right? Um, so you want to listen to the PhD students because they are going to be a better gauge of the climate that you're going to encounter. Generally speaking, look for a program that is investing either in the PhD students or in their junior faculty. 
because that means that the high status people in the program are invested in the junior faculty. The best programs, of course, from your point of view, is when junior and senior faculty are invested in the PhD students and they take them very seriously because then everybody's aligned and that becomes the place where they come together. But even when senior faculty are invested in junior faculty, it creates a win-win outcome. So it doesn't uh, overflow into politics and games and stuff that you have to play. For me, for instance, I had one professor who couldn't stand the other professor and both of them were in my committee, right? Not something you want to navigate um, in, uh, in, in the process of you going through this very tough journey. I hope some things here that are helpful to you. Thank you. I see there are no more questions on, on, on the chat. The fact that you're here in a Meet the Scholar uh, session and you're learning and growing from all of this, kudos to you. You're already yeah. way, way ahead of where yeah. I Yeah, that was quite impressive. You even figured out the right audience, huh? <laughs> the right community. So um, that's not uh, trivial. Rajri, now it's time for the speed Rajri trivia. Oh my God. Uh, which will is going to be uh, a set of questions uh, from me and Samina. Remember, we want to go beyond just meet the scholar. We want to meet the uh, person, uh -oh. the human being. I'm scared now. I'm scared. <laughs> Rajri, um, what is one of the movies that you like the most? Oh, I have eight movies that I oh. put in my Forbes articles as my all-time favorite. Oh, I missed that. Okay, the tell Martin, us. Three Idiots, Guru, uh, Pursuit of Happiness, Joy, uh, Padman, right? And I give you reasons why. Okay, so then we should uh, uh, Google search your Forbes uh, article for that. Yeah, this was in March when COVID hit. Mm -hmm. So you go okay. into the archive section, <laughs> you go on to myrashtriyadurwal.com and then you go. Oh, yeah, for those who, who had the luxury to watch the movie. So hopefully I'll find time before the summer is over. Samina? Favorite dessert? Vanilla ice cream. No, tiramisu and Ferrero Rocher. Okay. Favorite destination if you would have a sabbatical next year? Bakoni. Mm. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Advice to us working moms. Don't watch the clock for work-life balance. That's another one of my Forbes articles. Do not create a false dichotomy in yourself where it's an either or. Know that if, you, if your kids see that you're passionate about your work and that you're enjoying and finding fulfillment from that. And that's what you need to impress upon them too. That when you're pursuing things that are important to you, including them, um, it's not an either or. When do you think your daughter started to uh, understand? The oh, I don't know that this is <laughs> you just told us that it depends, need. right? It depends upon whether I'm leaving the daughter that wants something from me and wants to guilt me into doing something, 
or the daughter that wants to be nice to me and then get something out of me from that, right? So it depends upon which weapon they're using in any one day of their life. <laughs> what is one memorable show performance that you attended? Memorable show performance that I attended. Um, Philadelphia See, Flyers. Philadelphia Flyers. First game that I watched with Ed Snyder, I was given the honor of being in a hot seat right next to him. I was told that if the Philadelphia Flyers are winning, then it's a good seat to be in. If they're not, then he's a monster around to be there. But this was a game that was close and they end up losing. But this was my first, you know, so I'm like a typical nerd, nerd, right? I could care less about American sports. First four years of my life in Buffalo, was a huge fan of Buffalo Bills. Those were the four years that they went to the Super Bowl and lost every goddamn year. I was cured of sports by then. I was not going to invest my emotions anymore. But this Philadelphia Flyers one, I still remember very patiently, Ed was explaining to me the rules of ice hockey. And the most memorable moment was when... Uh, uh, the puck went off across uh, two lines and I said, hey, that's icing. And he looked at me with this pride on his face about a prof the professor giving <laughs> a child about, you know, how precociously intelligent and how quick a learner that <laughs> So I will still remember that and, you know, lots of good memories associated with that performance. Rajshree, what are your hobbies and what do you do to unwind? I veg out and watch Netflix and movies a lot, no question about it. I suck at playing volleyball, but I love playing it. And I try, and I try to win by hook or by crook, right? Um, so that's another thing that I like to do. Uh, I like doing crochet um, and I like hanging out. Uh, so more recently in the last five years, uh, we go to Deep Creek Lake which is, uh, and we just invested in buying a new house there too, on the lakefront. So Rob has this boat. I told him he can own the boat and I will very happily ride on it, but that's the extent that he can expect in terms of my investments in uh, keeping up with the boat and I enjoy it thoroughly. I like going uh, tubing on it. Uh, that's my thrill ride. Used to be that I loved, loved, loved roller coasters. You, you don't love roller coasters anymore? I haven't done it in several years. So tubing is as close. And Samina, you know, because I biped you and shout multiple times in our, in our lake house, uh, in, in lake experiences. I can vouch that tubing with Rajshree, her intent is to get thrown off. And my intent was to stay on. So, <laughs> well, listen, Rajshree, we've hit the two hour mark. On behalf of the division, I want to thank you for doing this. And a personal thank you, because anytime I think I'm busy, I think of your schedule. So I'm like, okay, I can find the time if Rajshree can find it. So thank this you. This was so a lot of fun. And by the way, uh, I am so grateful, so grateful to SDR. I love the Stronger Together uh, tagline. I think that you guys have just really innovated and um, been so entrepreneurial everything that you're doing. It is so important for us to keep our sense of community 
to keep this togetherness as each of us are feeling increasingly isolated. You guys are like be over and beyond in everything that you're doing. So heartfelt thank you from me. Thank this you. Was fun. You're a mentor and inspiration to all of us. So Denise, I'm going to turn it over to you. Rajshree, thank you so much. Even though I was uh, your student and I, I, I thought I knew so many things about you. I, I always enjoy the uh, the conversation. And for uh, um, all of you who are now in the audience, um, if it's. I don't know if we managed to convey this, but um, one of the great, greatest qualities that I admire at my uh, um, advisor is the sense of community that she helped create it. I try to um, share a quote here that Rajiri has mentioned during the conversation, which really um, reflects- Do you want to go on presentation mode, Denisa? Uh, yes, yes. Be always the advisor, what can I say? <laughs> I'm always willing to learn, Rajiri. <laughs> you are an expert in technology. So um, with that, um, I, um, I think it's- Both of uh, these quotes are by Eric Hopper, by the way. Yes, all of these, uh, both of these quotes. And uh, they, they really uh, reflect some some of the advice that Rajiri has given us over the years, and I think it's important for other people to benefit from. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and um, we, it's going to be posted on YouTube later on. I want to thank you again, the um, STR division leadership, for initiating these conversations. I uh, had the privilege to moderate two of them, and I enjoyed every moment, and I'm looking forward to um, to listening to other scholars as they share their uh, accomplishment, challenges, and um, uh, a little bit of their life. Thank you, Rajri, for being with us. Bye. Bye. See you guys when we next meet in person. Absolutely. Bye, Bye everyone.